Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is 11 July, 2023, 4.30 in the morning, getting a super early start. I've got surgery today. I get to minister to people today, and Damon and I and the whole team, Al and Kristen and everybody at Great Plains will be getting to take good care of some folks and relieve pain and restore function, hopefully. And that's what we really want to do in life in general is be there to help relieve pain and restore function to other people, pointing them towards the Lord, pointing them towards better ways to think, better ways to live, helping them change their minds and change their lives, right? Wouldn't that be a good goal for all of us to kind of look out for each other? Well, today I've got a special episode for you. Uh, We are seven days away from book launch for Hope is the First Dose. I'm very excited to be bringing you this new book, A Treatment Plan for Recovering from Trauma, Tragedy, and Other Massive Things, these massive things, the TMTs that come along in life and threaten to take our hope and our light and our faith away. But we're not going to let them because we're going to have a treatment plan. And the treatment plan involves hope, obviously, is the first dose, as we've talked about. But it's this prehab, self-brain surgery, and rehab trifecta. And I unpack it all in the book for you. And it's, it's the prescriptive method for how we got through losing our son, Mitch. And it'll help you, too. It's going to help change lives and open eyes and, and give you something practical to do. And today... I have a special guest on the show uh, we recorded last week, Dr. John Swanson, my good friend. He's a hospital chaplain, pastor, uh, graduate school professor uh, of theology, and has helped uh, just help lots of people um, learn more about the Word and how to educate other people. And now he works for the last several years as a hospital chaplain and ministering to people at the bedside. He's had some incredible experiences during COVID of working uh, really in the trenches of healthcare delivery in those dark times. And he's written numerous amazing books I've told you about. He's one of the only people I read every day. John's 300 Words a Day blog. It's the number 300 followed by Words a Day. 300wordsaday.com is John's blog, and it's amazing. Um, Deep spiritual insights all packed into about 300 words every day. And just a tremendous writer. First book I read of his was A Great Work, which is a story of the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah. It's really a transformative look at that book and why you should read it and why you should understand it. And then in recent years, he's written a whole bunch of short little prayer books. And the most important one, I think, is called This is Hard. And John's work is about how to help people, what to say and what to do and when to show up and how to help when people are hurting. And so one part of the treatment plan really is is to understand that sometimes we need to be caregivers for other people when they're hurting. Sometimes we're trauma adjacent or we're next to somebody who's going through their TMT, their massive thing, and they're hurting. And we need to know what to say and what not to say and what to do and what not to do and how to be helpful when people are going through hard things. John's got credibility. He's lost a child. He's lost a grandchild. He's been through a lot. And he has just this incredible peace about him. And every time I speak to John, I come away better. I've learned so much from him over the years. In fact, I, I modeled the character, the, the personality of the character in my book, I've seen the interview and hope is the first dose is sort of modeled after John's personality that the, the real person isn't and is not John Swanson, but to protect his identity and private conversations that we've had, I've sort of fictionalized that character and turned him into an amalgam of chaplains and pastors I've worked with over the years. And, and they, they sort of remind you of John Swanson if you read that character. If you, if you want to know who John Swanson is, look look at Pastor John in my books and you'll get to know the kind of challenging, uh, thought-provoking sort of pastor, mentor, chaplain that he is. Uh, and I've learned so much and grown so much from him. But today we're going to take a deep dive into how to 
to help other people when they're going through their massive thing, their hardest things, and how we can can come alongside and be one of those people that are delivering a treatment plan for someone else in their darkest hour. As a bonus, yesterday was John's 65th birthday, so shout out to John. Happy birthday, and we love you and praying for you and grateful to have this half-hour conversation with Dr. John Swanson, uh, one of the great thinkers of our time, I think, and you you would do yourself well to read his books and check out 300 Words a Day. Uh, he also has a thisishard.substack.com, uh, which is his writing about chaplain um delivery of this the treatment plan idea and how to help other people when they're going through hard things this is hard.substack.com it's john's substack um it's just a just a great writer you'll enjoy the time with john swanson today he's going to help us remember the most important thing about self-brain surgery and the most important thing really about life is that you can't change your life until you change your mind the good news is you can start today hey are you ready to change your life If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Friend, we're back, and I'm so excited to be bringing you back an old friend of mine. Actually, I should say digital friend. We've never actually met in the flesh, but we will someday, Lord willing. We've got Dr. John Swanson back with us on the show today. Hey, John, welcome back. It's good to be back. It's good to see you, Lee. It's good to see you, brother. Would you start us off with a word of prayer before we get started? Yep. So God, what is clear to us is that we have no idea what's going on in anybody's minds right now. Amen. And we have our own things that were happening just before we started talking. What's comforting is that you are aware of all of these situations and have been for a very long time. So I ask that you will guide our words, calm our hearts, as Lee and I are talking. And then I ask that you will be working in the hearts and minds of those who are listening. I ask that the timing of this will be perfect in ways that we never could have anticipated. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my friend. John Swanson has a PhD. He has been a hospital chaplain for seven years, been involved in higher education at the graduate level for 15 years, pastoral ministry for 15 years, married to Nancy for 40 years, just got to meet Nancy a second ago, and has two children, grown children, and one, you say, living grandchild. And when, whenever somebody says that, we know there's a story behind that has some pain in it. So tell us about that for a second, John. Yep. So actually, we have three children. Catherine was a daughter that was between Andrew and Hope, and that was, oh, I always lose track of years, so it's more than 30 years ago. And then a couple of summers ago, about three summers ago, actually, our daughter Hope 
lost a baby at about six or seven weeks gestation. So the way that we found out that we were going to be grandparents was in the same phone call that said, and you're never going to meet the baby. And so I was able to go visit her while she was in the hospital using my chaplain card, which I never take advantage of. But it's like my boss said, no, you get to do this. So visited with the two of them. And yeah. That's hard. I think there's an underrepresented or underappreciated or acknowledged group of grieving and bereaved parents, and that is the miscarriage families. Talk about that in your experience as a chaplain. Like how does, how do people that have miscarriages, how do they grieve and how different or is it different than those of us who lose child, the children that we already knew as people? I think that it's real grief in both cases. I think that to, so anybody that reads Hope is the First Dose is going to read you talking about realizing one day that you were losing all of those stories with Mitch yeah, that were never going to happen. For somebody who loses a child before birth or shortly after birth, all of their experience is anticipated. Yeah. So in other words, in that moment, in those moments where I'm having conversation, where others are having conversation with a with parents, it's saying none of us are ever going to see this baby. And so it's a real death. And it's a death of all of those dreams. Yeah. So the nursery that you got ready, the going fishing that you were planning to do, the first boy in a whole family, a whole generation of girls, or the first girl in a whole generation of boys, all of those things that that we started to build, those are being grieved as well. Yeah. And one of the things that we know from, from goal setting and commitment and some of those kinds of things is that having the thought, making the commitment, often has as real effects on us as actually doing it. That's so right. that kind of thing on that whole goal setting side of stuff. And if that's true over here, it's also true in the, and I'm looking forward to doing this with my baby yeah. or with my son or with my, and now that's gone. So there's really a double grief that's going on. And then there's a whole nother layer of, oh, I didn't even know you were pregnant. Mm-hmm. And all the other layer of stupid things that people say. I think that. It's this awful thing of, so if we're losing an adult child, nobody would ever imagine to say, but you could have another one. Yeah. We go, that's just stupid and insensitive. Yeah. And yet people do that on a regular basis in talking to those who have lost a child that way. Yeah. It's, we don't, historically, we don't think and talk about it enough. One of the things that I'm grateful for is that. There is a growing awareness in the, I was going to say, there's a growing awareness in the grief support side of things. There's a, an increasing awareness of infant loss and providing significant support for those who have gone through that. So there's writing that's happening and so on. But it's, it's still a couple that I married three years ago called about a month and a half ago and said, we were waiting to tell you, but now we need to tell you that our baby, who would have been 24 weeks gestation this week, has died. 
And so I'm walking through that with this couple and some stuff on the phone. And then we went and visited. My friend said, I didn't realize how often this happened. And it's, I think that part of one of the points that you make in hope is the first dose is that grief and loss end up being isolating. So we often do this. I'm the only one who's going through this. Yeah. And it relates in all the things that you're talking about, but it also shows up even in kinds of loss. Yeah. So even in stillbirth loss, because nobody talks about it, you think, oh, nobody understands what I'm going through. It's like, okay. Fortunately, there are some of us who, who know a little bit and are able to be a little bit helpful in walking through that journey. Wow. And one of the things John does is John's a deep thinker, as you can tell from our conversation so far. And this is, a, I don't know, the third or fourth time you've been on the show. But John writes books, and he has written a couple of amazing sort of full-length books. One is a great work, which is the best look at the book of Nehemiah that I've ever read. I still tell people about it frequently, and you should read it. A great work by John Swanson is about the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, tremendous book. What would it be like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with the prophet Nehemiah and talk about him? It's just a great book. But the thing that you've done in recent years is you've written a whole bunch of really short little power-packed little books. And the best one, at least in my opinion, is This is Hard. And it's what do you say? What ought we to be saying when these massive things happen to people? And that's the question I get asked the most often as a bereaved father. I think it, earlier today I was on a radio interview for my new book, and that's one of the questions. What would, what should we say when somebody loses a child? What should we not say? I hear it all the time. And John's written, I think, the definitive book on that, This is Hard. And talk just for a second, John, about what we ought to be talking about when people go through these hard things from a caregiver almost perspective when we're not the person who's going through it, but when we're next to the person or being called to visit with the person, what should we say? What should we not say? I think that one of the first things to think about is a thing that I've started thinking about over the last few months. And it's a sign that's on my wall right now, which says seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. There can be things that are always true, but are not timely. And at it's a point that you make in in Hope's the First Dose is that handing I thought about it, handing somebody that book, oh, I'm so sorry you just suffered a loss. Here, read this. This will be helpful. Yeah. No, it takes a while. So I think that one of the first things to that we need to do is to not try to find the right answer, not assume that there's an exactly right thing to say. I think that an important thing to do is to show up and to listen. Yeah. And then to pay attention. One of the one of the reasons that, that it's called This is Hard is I used to talk about, I used to say to people, I'm sorry for your loss. And I switched, and I'm not even sure how I made that switch, but to acknowledge to people, no, this is hard. Yeah. With a period there. Not this is hard, but you're going to make through make it through. Not this is hard, but look on the bright side. When you're in those first minutes which is what I end up doing as a hospital chaplain in our system. Chaplains show up for every death because we're paperwork people and we're support people. And so I am often in a room as somebody is dying or within minutes after they have died and acknowledging that this is hard. This is like the hardest thing. You get to be the center of the universe right now. You get to not apologize to people. It's okay that you're not remembering things. 
Yeah. All of those things that are those things are helpful things to say and to not rush. I think we are in such a get on to the next thing group of people. And I you know this too, that one of those moments we're so oriented toward movement until we are sitting waiting to walk into the room for a funeral. Yeah. As the family. And in that moment, you want the clock to stop. That's right. Because you know what's coming next and you just want to stop. And I think that it is perfectly acceptable in those first moments after a death to not rush to the next thing, to not rush to find answers, to not rush to find meaning, to not rush to any of those things, to stop and be present and acknowledge that, that this is a big deal. Amen. That's right. John, I'm going to pause this for one second. I got to let dog out. barking. <laughs> on a second. Sorry. Lisa's at the office, so I got to listen for the dogs. <laughs> when I heard that, it's okay. Yeah, it was Harvey. Anyway, no, I love it. Thank you for that thoughtful answer and for your patience. One of the things John and I talked about, John and I have done over the years, I should say, is when I have a question about something that I'm thinking, I tend to chew on things. How do I get through this? What? How should I be thinking about this? What does this scripture mean? Sometimes I'll send John an email, and it'll be a hundred words, and John will write back, "I need to think about that." <laughs> and then two weeks later, I'll get a video, <laughs> and John explains <laughs> it in a video, and it's amazing how we just have this digital relationship. Like I feel like you're my kind of secret pastor sometimes. But one of the things that we talked about in your email exchange this week getting ready to this is I've tried to come to grips with the fact that dawned on me a while back when I was trying to get over, not get over, but when I was trying to learn how to live in the post world of losing my son is I spend my whole life training and preparing for how to handle traumatic events that happen to my patients when they get their head bashed in or they break their spinal cord. And we have a plan. We know what we're going to do if this thing is bleeding or that thing is swelling or that thing is falling out. We know what we're supposed to do. And even in school, like it dawned on me, like as a child, I was taught stop, drop, and roll if you catch on fire. And I, I was drilled into my head, this is what you do if you catch on fire. And I'm 54, haven't caught on fire yet, but I have a plan for what I'm going to do <laughs> when I burst into flames. So I thought maybe giving people a plan for what happens when you need to find your way back to hope again would be helpful. And John and I were batting that back around. And you said, I'm thinking on three things that relate to the idea of preparing. So unpack that for us for a second, John. Why do we need to have a plan? One of the things that that you and I have both run into is the number of times that in really difficult situations, people say things about what they believe God ought to do. Yep. And what they believe God has said will happen. And unfortunately, often those are not accurate representations. And what I've realized is I and my colleagues in ministry bear tremendous responsibility for not helping people move beyond platitudes. Yeah. Because if all we know of stories is the third grade version, it was awesome for third grade, but there's so much more to the story. Yeah. And so if we understand Not only that Jesus healed people, but that he didn't heal everybody. 
and that when he was given the opportunity in his ministry to go to town, go back to towns and heal more people, what he said was, no, I need to go and preach. Yeah. I need to move to the next town to preach, to be present. And so I, I think that those of us who teach need to do a more thoughtful job of offering richer understandings of what it means that when Jesus was with Mary and with Martha, he spoke to them in ways that matched their personalities. Yeah. He responded differently to them. And then, even though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept. Yeah. Because death is a big deal. Yep. And so I think that that the more we help people understand that death happens, that sickness happens, that massive things happen, that they are not necessarily, even usually, mostly hardly ever, <laughs> yeah. punishment from God. But in fact, there are things that happen. And so to try and figure out why God's puning, punishing us, rather than saying, oh, this happened. So I think that the more accurate our picture is um, going into situations, the better our framework will be for living through those situations. It will never get easy. So I think that's always the important thing. All of these things are hard things. But sure. I think we make them even harder when we add bad teaching to them. I think that, oh, The Lost Art of Dying, I cannot remember the author's name, just was reading it. But she's looking at Middle Ages texts about that talked about the art of dying. Wow. But in her, and Clarissa Mall's husband, Rob, wrote mm -hmm. a book called The Art of Dying that was on the same thing. She's been on the podcast yeah. as well. But one of the examples that she used is it starts it off, and there's a guy who whose heart stopped and was restarted twice, 88 years old, body is ridden with cancer, emaciated, and his daughters say to the doc, no, you need to do everything possible because we believe in Jesus and we believe that Jesus could raise him from the dead so Jesus could heal him, so you need to keep going. Yeah. And there's this interesting body of research that suggests that the people who are most likely to go too long in intensive care are people who are Christians. Wow. Because they're, because they don't want to play God and they don't want to, they want to leave God every opportunity to provide healing and all. And so I think that the more accurate our understanding of who God is and how God is present with us, even in the middle of difficult times is going to, that accurate worldview is going to be more helpful to us, more supportive of us as we're walking through massive things. Wow. That has a lot to do with knowing what Scripture actually says about God and His character. Like you said, yeah. not just stories that were told as children, but learning it and reading it for ourselves. I just said this morning in an interview, people, you, Christians should have a high sense of responsibility to have good theology around the things that we're using to try to encourage other people or sometimes discourage other people. I had all these people after Mitch died that said things like, I guess God needed another angel or God needed him more than you did. And I'm like, okay, theologically, people don't become angels when they die. They, right. <laughs> angels and people are different creatures, and they don't become angels. And if they did, 
then it would be really mean of God who could create the entire universe to steal my son to turn him into an angel. That would be mean. He didn't need to do that. So have good theology if you're going to counsel people about what God's going to do or not do. I think that's important. That's a good point, John. Let's add another layer to what you just said. And I, it's going to sound really harsh, but I mean it. The next implication of the thing that is said there is, so what you're saying is that God killed my son. That's right. God killed my daughter. Really? And that's, those kinds of things are particularly awful when we are trying to provide support for kids. Yeah. And what we say to the kid is, so God wanted grandma, and so God took grandma, which in five-year-old ears can go, so God killed my grandma. Yeah. Which I had a friend years ago who was, his dad had just died, and he it was before the funeral. He's talking to God, talking about, I think in his prayer was talking about God taking him, taking his dad. And what he heard was, cancer took your dad. Mm. I welcomed him. Wow. And it's, oh. And this is this is from a guy who is a prayer guy who does not falsely attribute weird voices to God at all. For Tom to talk about this, oh my goodness. So glios take God, take people and God welcomes them. That's right. It, all of those things that, that God is ready and waiting and welcoming and Wow. Yeah. So I think that the more accurate we are, the better off we're going to be moving forward. I think that a second thing that I'm paying a lot of attention to is as we're trying to help people in loss, as we're as we're alongside people in particular, paying attention to timing and paying attention to individual differences is significant yeah. because our, we already talked about timing, that something can be true, but it's not timely. Yeah. And I think that paying attention to that. And the other thing is people are different and they, they lose different people. Yeah. I mean, when, when Patty died, Dennis and Lisa and you all lost a different person. That's right. Because for Dennis, this is somebody who had been part of him for a long time. Yeah. But for Lisa, this is somebody who had, she did not know that face, not taking a breath in her whole life. That's right. That's just, so those individual loss, the losing a different person is a significant thing. And then we've got different personalities too. That's right. And uh, and yeah, we often look for the one thing to say rather yeah. than, oh, let's listen. I did some, I started doing some survey research about this and asking people what helped them after a loss and what they wish people had said after a loss. And so I found these things like like validation. So people want want to hear this is hard. They want orientation. What do I do next? From somebody who actually understands. They want storytelling. So they want to tell their story of what happened. And they also want to hear stories about, about what their loved one had done. They want food. Some want yeah. presents. But as across the survey, there was no one thing that everybody said. So there wasn't a single response that every person that responded said. Nope. So that nope. lesson so is a lesson. Yeah. So it's listen and pay attention and understand something about personality. And it that's also true for us yeah. individually. 
because we spend a lot of time saying, am I grieving? Am I crying the right amount? Am I, excuse me. And the reality is there's not a right. There's a, what are you walking through? Even, even as I'm reading through, as I read through your book, Lee, there's this, there's a little bit of why is this happening? Why is this response happening to me? But you do a good job of not doing too much, beating yourself up in the book of, oh, other people are doing this better than I am. Yeah. And so, oh, some people are really good at grieving. That's the stupidest statement. What does it mean to be good at losing half of you? Yeah, that's right. And so I think that we create our own, we create judgments on ourselves in the middle of that too. And again, this is hard enough without false expectations that we put on ourselves that's or right. that those around us put on our put on us for how we ought to you run into this too i anytime somebody says nope i need to be strong it's like why what does strong look like and i i'm of a generation where the generation older than me did a lousy job at expressing emotion yeah yeah and so when I look at it, I think, man, what if my generation actually showed our kids what it was like to cry occasionally? What yeah. if my generation showed what it was like to be tender? Because um, the be strong thing didn't work real well. What if we tried being human? Wow. That's right. There's so much, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, you lose a child, you lose a grandchild you lose a parent or a spouse, you've never felt that before the first time that happens. You don't know what you're going to do or need or want or be able to express. And I think in some ways, I think it's unfortunate that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief got so famous, yes. right? Because they're not about what to do when you lose somebody. They, they, that That book, her research was about what people do when they find out they're dying. Like the individual who learns that they're losing their own life goes through yeah. a grieving process it's fairly predictable in some ways and she outlined that it doesn't help you when you've lost a child or you lose your spouse because i found myself angry and in denial and bargaining and being sad and being accepting and depressing all at the same time for mm -hmm. 10 years so don't beat yourself up if you don't think you're progressing through the stages in some orderly manner that somebody told you that you're supposed to and don't put expectations on other people about when they ought to be at the acceptance phase right yeah, but that often feels like people who have had one course in psychology where they're going, oh, so right now what you're going through is bargaining, but you're going to get past this in just a That's second. Right. When I, over the last several months, I've started learning about a model of bereavement called the dual process model. And what this model does is it says, so what's going on as we are walking through a bereavement process? Yeah. So in the model, they identify that there are loss-related stressors, so things that stress us that are connected to the loss, yeah. like, I didn't get to be there when they died. Um, wow. I wish that I had said this thing. So those are things that come to mind that are related to the loss. And then there are what they call restoration-oriented stressors, which are stressors that come in, and now I'm going to have to figure out where the passwords are. And now I'm going to have to put gas in my car for the first time in 40 years. And there's stress associated with the how I live now. Yeah. And the model suggests that we bounce back and forth between those kinds of stressors because 
reality of the car is almost out of gas intrudes. So we actually have to address that. But then, so we, and then it talks about oscillating back and forth between those. I can think about how I have to now put gas in the car. And the reason I have to put gas in the car is because he left me. Why in the world did he have the gall to die? And then, oh, here's the credit card. We have this process of oscillation going on between those. And then the model acknowledges those, there are those moments of overload. We are just completely overwhelmed. Yeah. What I like about the model is that it acknowledges that we've got a couple of categories of things that are going on in our lives. And we find stress in those. So there is stress in our lives that's induced by that. That bouncing back and forth is not because there's something wrong with us. It's because somebody died or some other massive thing. So we're talking about death, but a cancer diagnosis that leaves you not able to, not just the diagnosis, but then the treatment that leaves you not able to put gas in the car. There are all of those things, too, that that show up. So anyway, it's a model that I'm working more to understand, but the more time I spend with it, the more helpful it is for me to say so. If people who have just lost a loved one are going to have to be figuring out how to put gas in the car, what can I do to be helpful with that? So I can't solve the problem, but if I can find those areas where there would be additional stress and I can do something to mitigate that stress, that's a way I can be helpful. That's right. So anyway, it's a for me, it's, what's really fun about it is it's making me keep learning about this. I think that we both in our professional and our personal lives run into stuff that we haven't seen before. That's oh, right. I've never seen that situation before. And I think that there is a grief Bereavement is a learning process. Yeah. Living is a learning process. There aren't simple answers. They're not recipes. There's frameworks that can be really helpful. And we're not going to get fixed this side of glory. Um, But we can grow. What do you think the, as we get close to our time here, what the person who's listening who has recently been through their massive thing. They're going through it now. They're in the middle of the acute phase of the hardest thing they've ever been through. And John Swanson walks in the room. What do you tell them needs to happen now? How do you advise us, those who are listening, who are hurting right now, John? What do they need to do now? How can you help them now? First, this is hard. I'm sorry. I don't have any quick answer for you other than to acknowledge that this is a really hard thing. And I think that that acknowledgement is is a really helpful and important thing because it means that, oh, I don't have to move on to the next thing really quickly. I can acknowledge that, yeah, it's okay that I'm feeling this pain because this is exactly what happens in this kind of a situation. So I think that first, when I have conversations, it's, yep, this is hard. And then I listen to what happens, what they say after the tears. Because for some people, to be able to say, yeah, God understands being completely abandoned by all of his friends. So to the extent that you're feeling abandoned by all your friends, yeah, that's a thing that God understands. I think that breathing 
is a really helpful thing. I think that I agree that hope is a helpful thing. I think that, and I think that hope can be a really tiny glimmer. And I think that if you're at in the deep in the middle of it and you can't see any hope, take a nap, eat something. We have Dr. Lee Warren's acknowledgement that breaking drywall is apparently an acceptable response. Um, <laughs> I did catch that. And man, I'm, it's so funny. That's a terrible way to say it, but it's so funny around the hospital where after a death, people will punch the wall and somebody will say, is everything okay? No, actually it's okay. This is a really appropriate response because she just lost her mom and she had started the process of doing CPR and then they ended up here. And so that's a really good response. Yep. Didn't break the wall and it looks like it didn't break her knuckles. And so I'm okay with that. So I think that that if somebody's giving you platitudes, find somebody else. Mm. If somebody's telling, if somebody's using the word just or at least, yeah. I'm working with somebody on a project and this woman has lost two husbands. And she said, I hate anybody who starts a sentence with at least. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a really, yeah. So I I think that all of what I just said also points to the fact that if you are in the middle of your massive thing, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. And I think that should be comforting or it should be helpful because it means that if there is one thing and we're still going through pain and grief and whatever, it means that somehow we missed the one thing. And so now not only do we have that and we haven't found that one thing, but I think that the assurance that there is not an instant fix ends up being a relief. And now we can take those next steps of breathing, of talking, of sitting, of sleeping, and of just asking God for something. Thank you, John. John Swanson, he's my go-to guy when I have a deep thing that I'm thinking about. He can help you too. The most I guess, organized place to find John's discrete writings on things like we're talking about today. This is hard.substack.com. This is hard.substack.com. That is John's Substack. I take a little bit of credit for John being on Substack. I I encourage (laughs) you to get on Substack. Uh And so John has a great Substack. You should read. You're already reading mine. Go look at my recommendations. It's right there. You can click on John's and sign up for his for free as well. His book, this is hard is the best quick read you can find on how to help people when you're hurting, when they're hurting. And he's the fictional version of Pastor John in my book. I gave him John Swanson's persona in my in my book, somebody who lifts me up and challenges me to think about big things in a helpful way. So thank you, John, for your time and for all the great work that you do and the great writing and for the impact that you've had on my life. Oh, thanks, Lee. And thanks for walking through the hardness of your journey in writing this book. Uh, I think that it's helpful and it will be helpful. I'm honored to have your name and your words as an endorsement in the cover, inside the cover of my book. So thank you for that. And God bless you, friend. Always a pleasure to spend some time with you. Likewise. Take care.
What a great talk with my friend John Swanson. I hope you got something amazing from that. I hope you have an incredible day. Listen, don't forget, if you haven't pre-ordered Hope is the First Dose, it's coming out one week from today, and there are numerous special resources that you can get, downloadable, printable bookmarks, lock screens for your phone, screensavers for your computer, some digital resources, and three-chapter preview of the book so if, you, if you're not sure if you want to read it buy the hardcover order it from amazon or wherever you buy books christianbook.com has a sale on it right now by the way um and read the three sample chapters and if you don't like it cancel your order i'll give you that challenge i, I guarantee it if you read those sample chapters and you pre-order help us out if you don't like it you can get a refund before they ship it you can do that and you'll find i think that the book is helpful to you I think you'll find that you don't want to return it. You're going to want all those chapters and not just the three free ones. So check it out. DrLeeWarren.substack.com is the newsletter. The website is WLeeWarrenMD.com slash first dose to pre-order and upload your receipt to download all the the uh, goodies, the Spotify playlist, the screensavers, the lock screens, the three sample chapters, all that stuff. There's even a printable bookmark. If you want to put some cardstock in your printer, print you up some bookmarks, then that'll be helpful. Listen, friend, I hope you enjoyed the talk with John Swanson. We've got some other incredible guests coming up between now and book launch. And as a special announcement... At 2.30 p.m. on Monday, the 17th July, 2023, we're going to do an Instagram Live with Dr. Daniel Amen. So Daniel Amen is going to host an Instagram Live. We'll have a little conversation. You'll be able to click on there and, and hear a good conversation between America's favorite psychiatrist and your good friend, the neurosurgeon, Dr. Lee Warren. And that'll be at 2.30 p.m. Central Time on July 17th, Instagram Live. If you're not following me on Instagram, it's at Dr. Lee Warren. Follow Doc, D-O-C, Amen, A-M-E-N, Doc Amen on Instagram is Daniel Amen. And he and his uh, followers will be hosting an Instagram live with us on Monday. So check that out. God bless you, friend. Hope you enjoyed this talk with John Swanson. Don't forget, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.